Well, good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16? I'm going to read uh, from verses 16 through 22, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started. This is God's Word. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that, what they, want, knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Will you guys pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, I pray that we would do precisely what we just sang as we begin to talk about self-denial and Lent, I pray that we would stay close to the cross, that it would be not our efforts during this season that we depend on, but entirely on the work of your Son. We know that no amount of self-denial that we can put ourselves through puts you in our debt, but we need to remember that so that we don't become self-righteous and hypocritical. We trust you to do that for us by your Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're... uh, going to observe Lent together this year as a church. And that's not something, of course, that we've ever done as a church. That's actually uh, not something that I've ever done in a community. I've like dabbled in it by myself a little bit here and there, but I've never been a part of a church community that observes Lent. And to me, that's a really good thing. That's a good thing for us. We want to be rookies at self-denial, right? We shouldn't have, I mean, the most annoying people in the world are experts at self-denial. So this is good for us to do this together as a church for the very first time. And of course, there's nothing that you need uh, more when you begin to think about fasting than people around you that are going to love you and encourage you and tell you, hey, that's okay that you broke the fast. That's not what it's about. That's precisely what we need. So I thought that as we begin to think about this as a church, maybe the best thing to do this morning, the thing that could be the most helpful for us is to take a minute and just explain it, right? Just find out what Lent is, what it means to fast, and then just ask the practical question, what could that look like for me? What could that look like for you? What could that look like for us as a church? Now, 
Some of you will know that our church has a constitution. We have a document that sort of explains what we believe about God and about the gospel. It's underneath the Bible. It doesn't have the authority that the Bible has, but it's just a constitution that we use to say, this is more or less what we believe is an accurate and helpful summary of God's word. And that constitution for us is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, if you owned one, if you went and bought one, or if you just got your hands on one at the library, you would notice that the beginning of that document is just truly what you would think of as a confession, right? Chapter by chapter explaining to you kind of the basic things about who God is and about what the Bible teaches about God, what the gospel is. And then after that, you would find that it has two catechisms. And the two catechisms are just, what a catechism is, is just question and answers, right? It's basic questions about what the Bible says about God, and then basic answers. Now, in our confession, there's a larger one and there's a shorter one. And you can imagine what each of those are. The larger one is the more verbose one. The shorter one gets to the point a little bit more rapidly. So I thought, in the style of our catechisms, I just want to ask the question, what is Lent, and answer them in that kind of manner. Now, this is not. This got confusing last service. A lot of people came up to me and said, I had no idea that Lent was in the Confession of Faith. It's not. I made all of this up. I'm just using the form of that because I thought it might be helpful to understand it. This is not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. These are my ideas. So, you know, fallible and all that. Anyways, here's the longer answer, and then I'll give you the short answer. What is Lent? Lent is an unsustainable temporary effort towards the disciplining of a Christian's desires during the 40 days prior to Easter. It is a determination to renew obedience in line with the, law, with the call and law of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Now that's my verbose one. My shorter one, unfortunately, is harder to understand than my larger one, and it's going to take me the rest of my sermon to unpack it. And so I couldn't have written the confession anyway, because that's what they avoid. But here's the short answer. What is Lent? Lent is walking with Jesus in his bright sadness. Now, I know that what's curious about that answer are those two words, bright sadness what on earth they could mean and how they could pertain to Lent and how they could be true about Jesus's earthly ministry. And those words I actually borrowed from somebody else. I borrowed from a man named Alexander Schmemann. And Alexander Schmemann was a Russian man during the 20th century. He was a priest in the Orthodox Church, and he wrote a book about Lent. I only know about him because he wrote a book about Lent. And in his book about Lent, he tries to describe what an old-timey Russian Lent service would have looked like. And he says that when you walked into this service you would immediately know what he means by the phrase bright sadness. You would come in and you would say, wow, I feel deeply a bright sadness. This is what he says. He's describing the service. He says, on the one hand, a certain quiet sadness permeates the service. Vestments are dark. The services are longer than usual and more monotonous. There is almost no movement. 
Readings and chants alternate, yet nothing seems to happen. Thus, for a long time, we stand in this monotony, in this quiet sadness. Now, I'll tell you that that doesn't appeal to me. Nothing about standing in quiet monotony appeals to me at all. And so when I read that, I think, man, this is terrible. Nobody would ever, you, Lent you couldn't do every year. You could do it once, and it would be a revolt, and you would never be able to do it again. But he goes on, and he says in the next paragraph, he says, but then we begin to realize that this very length and monotony are needed if we are to experience the secret and at first unnoticeable action of the service inside of us. Little by little we begin to understand, or rather to feel, that this sadness is indeed bright, that a mysterious transformation is about to take place in us. All that seemed so tremendously important to us as to fill our mind that state of anxiety, which has virtually become our second nature, will disappear somewhere. Sad brightness. The sadness of my exile, the sadness of the waste that I've made of my life, the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness towards me in Christ, the joy of my recovered desire for God, the peace of my recovered home, such is the climate of Lenten worship, such is the first and general impact upon my life. Now that's a very different paragraph, right? When I read that, I thought, that's something I want to be a part of. And it's funny because it seems to me that the first paragraph I read, when you think about Lent initially, you're going to have something like that impulse. 40 days is a long time, and it feels monotonous to practice self-denial during that thing. But when you read the second paragraph, you say, is it truly possible that God could awaken my desire for him to the degree that this man writes simply by taking up a few spiritual practices during this time of the year? This man was a man that understood the impact that the rhythm of Christian worship can have upon the worshiper. And I want to be a part of something like that. He's talking about Lent as a kind of bright sadness. And I don't have that much experience with a worship service like that, but my, that phrase only brings to, to mind one thing for me, and that's just simply the life of Jesus. It reminded me that Isaiah taught that Jesus was going to be a man that was much acquainted with grief. And it reminded me of the toil of his temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, which we read. It reminds me of the phrase that we heard just a few weeks ago from the writer to the Hebrews, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And so... It makes me want to ask God, right? Can I imitate Jesus in his grief in the world's rejection of him? Can I imitate Jesus in the bright hope that he must have had, that his people were one day going to have joy because of the presence they felt through his spirit? Can I imitate their recovered desire for God? Can Lent really be for me about the renovation of my heart and about the renovation of my desires, because I'm way too aware. I'm way 
to aware that a greater desire for God is precisely what's almost always lacking in my life. Now, I chose this passage from the Gospel of John chapter 16 because it doesn't, we don't typically think about that when we think about Lent, but I chose it because it seems to me to have this connection between sadness and joy. It feels like Jesus understood that very few of our emotions are unmixed and pure. Often sadness and joy can go hand in hand for reasons that may be totally inexplicable to us at the time, but Jesus seemed to understand that those two things can be connected. Now, John chapter 16 has particulars in it that we feel maybe um, a bit distant from, right? It's just simply the story about the disciples' grief over Jesus' soon departure from them. They're grieving over the fact that Jesus is telling them that he has to go away, but that he's going to eventually come back. And we don't live in that era, but Jesus says in verse 20, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus was walking to his death, knowing that the sadness of his death would be a bright one for all his people. And he's trying to explain to his disciples that their grief over his departure wasn't going to be terminal. They were going to find joy because very soon his presence in their life was going to be indestructible. But they don't know anything about that, right? They don't understand that at all in that moment. They don't know that. They can't see that. All they know is that Jesus is telling them that he's leaving them. And that reality, that truth, was going to be a severe disruption in their life. It was going to be a severe disruption because they'd grown comfortable with walking around with Jesus. They'd grown comfortable with idling around Galilee on into Jerusalem while Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons when he raised the dead. Anybody would grow comfortable walking around with somebody like that. They'd grow comfortable in their status as his disciples, right? It was nice to be named among the twelve. It was nice to be named upon among the people that were the closest to Jesus. And now you're leaving? You're going away? That's a significant disruption in the life of, their, of the disciples. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that when they hear that Jesus is leaving, they're initially dumbfounded and struck with sadness that they're losing their beloved friend. That was going to be a time of deep sadness. But Jesus was trying to explain to them that their sadness could actually be bright. Because even though for the time being, God was going to strip Jesus' bodily presence away from his disciples, he was soon going to fill them again with Jesus when he sent his spirit to them. Now, like we said, we live in a different era. And so the particulars of that feel distant, right? We don't know, of no political regime is ever going to take Jesus away from us in the way that the Romans and the Sanhedrin took Jesus' bodily presence away from the disciples. He's always with us through His Spirit. But we do know that the Bible says that His Spirit can be quenched in our life, right? Things can arise in our life very slowly, 
maybe just by a degree that cause us, that draw us out of step with the Spirit. And so Lent can become a special time of focusing on Jesus' often painful earthly ministry and asking Him to spotlight the things in our life that draw us away from the beauty of the bright sadness of His ministry. Now, we read this morning, uh, you heard during the reading, the story of Jesus' fasting in the wilderness. These 40 days at the very beginning of His ministry where he didn't eat and where he was tempted by the devil. And like David said, that's fundamental during the time of Lent. Jesus' faithfulness, of course, in his fasting begins to deconstruct Adam's unfaithfulness. The first sin, it seems to me, the first sin that ever happened in the world was the sin of breaking a fast that God had prescribed to Adam, right? God told Adam, you can have everything. Please fast from this one tree in the middle of the garden. Please don't eat from that tree. And when Adam broke that fast, the sin wasn't that he broke God's arbitrary rules, but that he began to believe that food could make him more powerful than God. Remember what the devil said to Eve, if you eat this fruit, it's going to make you wise. And so wisdom, all of a sudden, doesn't come from God. It now comes from calories, right? And Adam begins to believe that man actually could live by bread alone and not by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if Jesus is, like we sometimes say, the second Adam, and if his ministry begins with fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, Maybe he's beginning to deconstruct all the evil that that first sin wrought. Because unlike Adam, Jesus is going to fully fulfill the task that God has given him. But he's a man. And so he's going to be hungry. Just like we are in fasting. And hunger, of course, is that state when we realize our dependence on something else. When we have that experience where we know that we urgently and essentially need food, showing us that we have no life in ourselves. And in that moment, all of us begin to ask the question, on what precisely does my life depend? Adam thinks it's food. And Jesus is going to say, it's not food. It's not food at all. There's something more primary. There's something that stands behind that and in front of that. And Jesus' fasting begins to protest the lie that the devil told Adam from the beginning. And that's the lie that it's only the stuff of this world that sustains us, that protects us, and that finally affects us. And so Jesus exposes that through his fasting and determines to live in the care of his father. Now, if that's just a brief kind of way of thinking about Lent, the question is, what do we do? Like, how do we practice that? What can that look like for us? And I'll confess to you that I've often been very skeptical about Lent and about seasons like Lent. Not because I have anything against traditions that practice it, or not because I have anything against the history of it. I don't. All that stuff is fine with me. 
The thing that I've been skeptical of is the way that I've seen other, none of y'all, other people practice it in the past, right? That's the thing that makes me skeptical because most often when I see people practice Lent, it just looks like a small lifestyle tweak. One that the only person that could be happy about it is your doctor. And there's no spiritual, I don't, it just seems like there's no spiritual fruit from it at all. David sent me, an e- David Gentino sent me an email a month or two ago about Lent, and, or it was an article about Lent, and it talked about uh, the writer had said that they had been seeing people, seeing people post like what they're doing for Lent on social media, and attached to that was the hashtag, hashtag. And I can't do hashtag at all. That's the why, that is not what this is about at all. Don't hashtag anything for the next 40 days, please. This is about a time where you can put off something that may entirely be good and fine the rest of the year, but where also you can take on something that has some kind of spiritual benefit. Without the taking on, Lent may do very little to benefit us spiritually. But as we eliminate temporarily these extra things, we can be forced, it seems to me, we can be forced outside of ourselves. That way, by just gaining a little extra margin in our life, right? By gaining a little extra time, by putting away things that, we no- that normally fill our time, or by putting away things that fill our mind, like David talked about earlier, all of a sudden you have a margin to contemplate who everything that God is for you in Jesus. And you have a margin to pour your lives out extra for your neighbors in a way that you wouldn't always do. It may just be something that gives you that little freedom of mind to contemplate your dependence on God and the freedom of time to pour yourselves more deeply into others. The point is, it's not a lifestyle tweak. Please, on Easter morning... Do not come up to me and tell me that you can now see your abs because of what you've given up for the 40 days prior to Easter. That would be extremely to miss the point. This is something different where spiritually we're benefited even if there's a small physical benefit that comes along with it. Let's take up something that draws us into step with the Spirit again. Now I want to tell you to close, I just, I'm going to tell you guys what I want to, what I Uh, plan to do for Lent. I'm being self-referential here to show you how manageable Lent can be, not to show you how unmanageable it might be. That's why I'm telling you guys what I'm doing. Now, three weeks ago or so, I asked my wife, Anna, what she thinks that I should give up for Lent. So what do you think? What would be a good thing for me? And Anna came back and said, I think you should give up reading for Lent. And I said, it's totally preposterous. In the history of the church, no one has ever given up reading for Lent. I don't know everybody's story. I can assure you that that's never happened once. I'll lose my job if I give up reading for 40 days, right? But everybody in this room knows what she was asking me and knows what she meant, right? 
What she meant was when you come home every day, you have three little children that are longing for you to spend time with them. And you have a wife that's been with them all day and would like to connect with an adult. And you put your nose in a book or you stick your nose into your phone and you read junk journalism until everybody else goes to bed. And we don't know you in the way that we should, right? That's a very different way of thinking about it. And so we decided that when I come home for the next time. Now, many of you in this room, the point is, many of you may already have the wherewithal to know that it's foolish to ignore your family by reading, right? You already do that, right? So that's the point. It's a manageable thing. But my phone will go away and the books will go away. And then also, just one day a week, I'm just going to wait to eat until dinner time. Right? So I won't eat the two meals that come before that. And as I get hungry, I just want to pray about real hungers. Like my personal hunger that I often neglect because I'm full with a thousand other things for spiritual things. And I want to pray that for my family and my friends. And I want to pray it for all of you that we would come to know real hunger for things that are of everlasting and eternal significance. So what I'm asking, I guess, this morning is for you to join me in this. For you, you don't do what I do. Find something that's appropriate for yourself. But join me in observing this because we have no idea what God might do. If we take the time to say, Lord, there are things in my life that I never think about that are prohibiting me from being closer to you, would you be willing to spotlight those things? Would you show me an appropriate way to put those things off during these next 40 days? And would you just show me one thing that I could take on? What God might awaken in our midst, we have no idea. So let's pray to that end together this morning. Father, we love you, and we trust you to do these things. We really do. We want to stay close to you and stay close to the gospel during this time. We don't want this thing to be something that makes us think more of ourselves. In fact, this should just be something that makes us think of ourselves less. But Father, we ask that you would send your spirit. No self-denial can happen without his presence and without his prompting in our hearts. So will you send him? And would you enable him to fall on all of us and give us the strength to walk through the season together so that Easter morning we can say all things are filled with light because of the resurrection of your Son. And all is bright because of the resurrection of your Son. We love you, Lord, and we trust you to do these things in your name. Amen.